Hello everyone and welcome to season two, episode five of Barton Wilmore, now Stantec, uncut. Um, those of you who have traveled with us over the two years since the uh, pandemic will know that th these, these podcasts came out of a desire to have a chat when we're all locked at home. And we've been lucky to be joined over the last uh, two years by a number of friends to chat around things that we find interesting. Um, and we hope that some, some of you do too. Exciting times lie ahead, actually, if you're like me and a planning geek, because we at last have a bill, a planning bill. After much fanfare, much noise, much gossip, much comments from people as to what Michael Gold had told them the day before, as it were, we now have a leveling up and we uh, generation bill. And I'm sure all of you have joined different seminars, webinars and blogs to see what's in it. Today, we're not going to go through section by section and we're not going to therefore help you on your CPD points. What we are going to do is have a chat about what we think as a headline are some of the key interesting points that are beginning to tax us and for us to think through when we start seeing more and more, as it were. We've been challenged not to say the devil is in the detail for fear of abuse on Twitter. We've also been challenged not to say it will come out in the wash as well. Um, and I'm sure we'll fail on both of those. So before we go further, rather than me tell you who is, is, is on the call today, I will let everyone say hello so you can put a voice uh, to a name and then we'll go from there. So Ian Gilby, hello. Hello. Hi, Ian. And uh, thanks for um, getting me involved this afternoon. As you say, interesting times, uh, very interesting times. So, yeah, Ian Gilby, planning partner with um, law firm Vincent Masons, specialising in all things planning. Great. Hi, Ian. Uh, Catriona. Hello. Thanks for inviting me back again. Um, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Katrina Riddell. Um, I am an independent consultant um, specialised in strategic planning. So, um, I'm the person that seems to be hitting their head against a brick wall most of the time around trying to, <laughs> trying to get something sensible out of government. Fantastic. Mary. Hello, I'm Mary Meskell and I'm um, an environmental planner at Barton Wilmore now Stantec and I've been doing EIAs now for about 20 years. Fantastic. Tom. Thanks, Ian. Um, hi, everyone. Tom Martin, director at Quattro. We specialise in political and community engagement. And like Katriana, I think I'm making, I think this might be my third appearance. So thank you for having me uh, back. Clearly something must be going right. No, it's great to have you guys along. And uh, let's let's start off, Shay, with, with all, all the exciting parts of the bill and all the outcomes regarding the plan-led system, material considerations and the role of national policy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think all of us, over the last few years have waded through long-winded examinations, etc. We've all struggled you know, with local authorities finding it hard to get plans through. But we all want a plan-led system. Is, is this the solution? I suppose the question is, is, is this package of measures, is this the solution? And I'm going to start with you, uh, Katriona. Yeah, you're right. We we all want a plan-led system and, and we've moved so far away from that over the last 10 years that it is very comforting in many ways to hear a lot of talk in the, in the, the, the last few days about um, moving back to that. But to have a plan-led system, you need plans. 
and I think there remains that remains the big challenge. Um, and you know, for me, that starts with getting some of the really big strategic planning challenges dealt with, like housing numbers across local uh, local authority boundaries, the big infrastructure challenges, green bill, um, and increasingly some of the big environmental challenges like uh, nutrient neutrality, impact on SPAs. These are all big, meaty strategic planning issues that have to be dealt with through local plans. So unless we tackle the strategic planning bit of this through the reforms, then we're not going to get plans in place and we're not going to have a plan-led system. And is there is there anything in the bill that which would give you comfort that there will be, because they're bringing in national policy, aren't they, given a, a whole new status, um, and SPDs, and I'll come on to bottom draw plans, and that's how old, that's how old, how old I am. Is there anything in that in the bill which would give you comfort that those issues will actually be addressed? No, not really, because um, you know, despite the promises, I think we've ended up with unbelievably a weaker approach to strategic planning than we have it already, um, which was already pretty poor. So they're they're getting rid of the duty to cooperate. Hurrah! Everybody wanted that, but we also wanted it replaced with something that worked better. And the answer to that is um, a policy approach, and we're yet to see what that really means. But it's sort of, I think, some form of um, challenge to local planning authorities as they prepare their local plans to make sure they're looking at strategic issues. And the opportunity to prepare joint spatial development strategies, which are um, similar to what combined authorities prepare as well. But when you look at actually the, the provisions in the Act and the, the accompanying papers, it actually rules out most, it leaves it very much up to the local authorities to do this. So it is entirely voluntary now. There is no legal mechanisms whatsoever to, to force local authorities to do something strategically. Um, and they've ruled out a, a huge number of um, potential areas that could benefit from good strategic planning. And, you know, I would use West Midlands as an example every time where um, they're crying out for something. Uh, it's a big city, it's a big city region, it's a big region, and it's crying out for some real strong strategic planning. But whilst the mayor uh, doesn't want to do it, it means under these new proposals, none of the local authorities can prepare a spatial development strategy either. So it sort of leaves them fairly impotent in terms of what they can do and that they're not the only place. So um, on paper, maybe the government thinks it's a positive step forward, but when you add it up and look at the practical reality of this, uh, I think it's left us off worse off than, than we are at the moment. Ian, I think just to jump in on <coughs> Katrina's point there, um, I think you asked, you know, you're right, we're a long time coming to get here. I mean, you know, I'm sure everyone here remembers this thing called planning for the future white paper and, you know, this talk of zonal systems and things like that. And that does seem a long time ago for us to get here. And all of, we talked about the, this idea of, you know, what is the analysis, what's the takeaway from the levelling up and regeneration bill? And my gut feeling is that most people agree that there's a muddled uh, output to this. And I dare say that the easiest way to understand that is thinking about two audiences for the bill. The primary audience being Conservative MPs and Boris Johnson making sure he keeps his job, which I think is probably his number one concern at the moment. I don't think his number one concern writing this was how do I, you know, what's the utopian view of um, reforming the planning system? I think he was thinking, how do I make sure I don't have a, re a revolt on my hands um, before Sue Gray's report comes out? And then there's a secondary audience, the poor folk like us who deal with the planning system 
uh, day in, day out, who perhaps do see the, the vision for you know, planning utopia. And I'm not sure the two audiences necessarily match up. But, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got, well, as I read it, this is for it, yeah, we've got writ large in it, an increase in role and status of national policy. And, you know, those of us who read the small print of the MPPF, we already had the written uh, ministerial uh, statements put in the bottom of the footnote, if you remember that one. And uh, I'm just thinking, Ian, you, know, you being the lawyer that you are, did you read the bill and go, oh, I'm, I'm going to be in the High Court here for the next five years? Yeah, what does strongly mean? Is it written ministerial statement coming out on the hoof? You know, do we start getting the Eric, Eric uh, Pickles letters, version four, version five type? Now, i.e., do we start getting this national policy on the hoof to address Tom's point about who is the audience? Right, I've got an election coming up. Let's close down that. Let's deal with this. Let's publish a, a, a you know, let's publish a national policy in the broadest sense. And immediately under the bill, if it's if it forms part of statute, from statute has a status, a, yeah. a higher status, as it were. Yeah, no, I, I, I think so. And I think, um, you know, the beneficiaries from this um, will, will be, uh, as always, the planning, the planning bar, uh, the planning consultants and um, perhaps, you know, firms like like mine, because um, the uh, hokey cokey with the policy hierarchy and bringing uh, this new layer of um, national development management policies into the development plan uh, requirement under the Act uh, creates, you know, creates a new a new approach um, and a, a new centralised approach. I mean, the whole point about the MPPF was a sort of neoliberal um, cascaded approach whereby policy was reduced to 70 odd pages at a national level and local authorities were told to go and get on with it uh, as part of the localism agenda. Well, this is a centralisation agenda and allows uh, central government to make policy through development management, national development management policy, which is this new layer, and potentially through through other means, which could be written ministerial statements. And one of the concerns I've got about that as a as a you know as a flag bearer for the planning system in this country, leaving aside what I do as a day job, but I'm you know passionately believe in the importance of the planning system on a, a small and crowded island. It's got such an important role to play. And one of the concerns I have about this um, as a mechanism is it potentially moves the gravity of policy making to central government away from local government. And I think that will create a democratic deficit because um, central government is only accountable on a five year general election cycle. Local government is elected much more often and is more accountable. And the other great advantage of local plans is that they're examined properly, regulation 18, regulation 19 stage, and then through the examination in public. There is no detail yet on what the consultation process will be for this new layer of development management policy. Um, I think probably it will be akin to that which we've experienced on the MPPF, which will be a draft will be published, consultation responses will be received, probably roundly ignored and and then the policy will, will be published in its final form so i am concerned that there will be a uh, democratic deficit as a result of the elevation of national policy promulgated by national government which won't be scrutinized by an independent arbitrator and subject to consideration as an examination it will be it will be sent round we'll all send something back and um, and that will be that yeah but the plus side of that is that, you know, 
uh, catch your own eye, if we half close our eyes, at least two thirds of most plans that we read in draft all say the same thing. Yeah, yeah, you can. A lot of the policies are quite generic. Okay, they apply locally. And if you are going to get through the 30 month time frame for new local plans, which would be fantastic, wouldn't it, really? Yeah, maybe I've always been a proponent of, of a book of maps, deal with the headline stuff on a generic level. All says the same. We all know what it says, you know. I remember being at one examination where the inspector said, Look, I know what it says. This place is lovely and the sun, sun shines every day, you know. And, and, and yeah, and, and so. If we can get to a streamlined plan, how do we get to a streamlined plan-led system? Because most of the objection at local plans and missions isn't on that front-end DM policy. Is no one weighs through that. I mean, London Plan 830 pages long. You know, the, the objection and the time is taken over the site allocations. Yeah, but that's I agree with that, Ian, as a, as a point. But, I mean, the London Plan's a really good example of, of, of how not to do that because Absolutely. the London Plan has had a massive policy land grab from the boroughs. Yeah. So the, the London Plan is a strategic policy document. Absolutely. Not, not anymore, it isn't. It's a development management policy mm. document. So um, if you're going to follow the London Plan model, you'll end up with 800 pages of national policy. Uh, gosh, that sounds quite a lot like PPGs. Um, mm. So I, there may be that there's a middle ground somewhere between the 70 odd pages of the MPPF and the 800 pages of the London plan. But where that middle ground is, I think, is is going to be difficult because, because the, you know, whether you're in Manchester or whether you're in Plymouth or whether you're in rural Lincolnshire, there's a very set, a very different set of front end policies that you need to deal with those very different contexts. Yeah, but the Greenbelt, yeah, the Greenbelt, yeah, they all plans tend to restate Greenbelt. They tend to restate. AOMB policies, you know, so, you know and, and I think just picking up your point, Tom, you know, how is that going to sit with, you know, the swing local authorities between Tory and Lib Dem in the southeast, and the swing local authorities between Labour and Tories in the Red Wall? Is, 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 it, is it relieving those local politicians of the burden of taking the local plan hit on, on the doorstep, as it were? It, or is it going to be, as Ian says, a, a, a grab of grab a policy? Well, no, I, I don't think it does relieve them of the burden. Um, I can think of several local authorities where I'm working currently where there has been inertia for the past six, 12, possibly longer uh, months because on the back of planning for the future and, I, I, you know, remember the word algorithm, mutant algorithm, you know, that seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Uh, even up until two months ago, people were adamant. People in, in certain local authorities were adamant that their housing numbers were about to get slashed, that they had had the nod and the wink from the deluxe ministerial team. And therefore it was fine to pause plans because good news was coming. I will wait and see, but I don't think that has, I don't think that is one thing that has changed from the leveling of regeneration bill. So we've lost 12 to 18 months from a huge amount of inertia. There are still difficult decisions to take. Um, planning, and perhaps to be more specific, the local plan process is becoming more political, not less political. Yeah. I mean, just on the, the point Ian made about the London plans, an interesting one, because in like Clause 85 of the, the draft bill, it's proposing to bring the London plan into line with all other combined authority SDSs and strip out all the detail and, yeah. and make it much more conform to that model. So um, I think that there's a recognition that that's gone too far. And, and then 
Ian and the other Ian's point about the the local plans, I I agree. But local plans before two thousand and twelve were different because they were vision led documents. They were about what a local place and local communities yeah. and local authorities wanted, to, how they wanted to shape their community. And then the national policies and legislation and things applied on top of that. Now we've got so much conformity in terms of standard methodology numbers and. Um, everybody dealing with Greenbelt instead of having a process in which that's tested at a, a strategic planning level. We've ended up with local plans that might as well be you know, from one end to the, uh, the, the country to the other, say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we're going to get back to a vision-led process that allows, if you strip out some of these policies get back allows them to get back to something that actually is more locally relevant in terms of the the upfront spatial policies i think that's a good it's a good point katrina sorry and i think it's a good point and i think um you know hopefully the local vision and uh the the, the book of plans and your idea you know won't trip over that national yeah. uh, development management policy framework but until we see what that is it's going to be difficult to form that judgment just on the london context it's a it's a really important point and um you know overtly political um i, I think this this government has uh, resigned itself to there being a relatively permanent Labour mayor in in City Hall, and um, they've seen that the the policy, uh, the amount of policy emerging from City Hall in the London context has, has just got larger and larger. So I think this is a very overt step to try and um, to try and pair that back. So I'm very interesting to see what happens next. But obviously for now we've got. As you say, an 800-page London plan to um, to contend with. Well, yeah, and, and the power sits just with that single person yeah. in London compared yeah. to all the other combined authorities where the mayor has to work with the other members. Yeah, yeah. And it could be naughty, 800 pages of saying what what you can't do, not what. Yeah. You can. But I mustn't <laughs> yeah. I mustn't get told off again. Mary, do you, can you help us out? Because another thing, another part of, of, of the bill which, which isn't fleshed out. But I think all of us at plan making and, and application promotion stage, we struggle through FCASA, EIA, subsequent applications and going round and round and round and round. Um, any views on, on the sort of on the muted intentions to streamline the EIA process and replace it with a, a, new, a new simplified system? I think streamlining the process is a good idea because I think EIA has lost a lot of its proportionality. But I don't know how the SCA or the plan level is going to interact with the um, consent level, the relevant consent. So I don't know. I mean, it's it, it sounds like a good thing, but I just there's no information on how it's going to work. How are they going to interact with each other? How are they going to help each other? How are these specified environmental objectives going to tie in? How are we going to assess against that? There's just, just really no information. Not at all. Uh, and Ian, you know, in terms of you know where you and I used to earn our our, 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 our spurs in the High Court with Richard Buxton, as it were, is there any, is there problems there in the future? Yeah, and I think uh, for me the kind of multi-stage approach to EIA, which has been um, settled by by case law over the last you know two decades um you know is a pretty well a pretty well trodden system now we all understand it and we know that if we um uh, change the likely environmental outputs from a scheme during the life of a scheme then supplementary environmental impact assessment work has has to be done and there's a kind of gatekeeping role each time you put in a 
slotting application or a reserve matters application. So it will be important for the environmental outcomes report to reflect the phase nature of large and complex schemes. Uh, I think if you're not going to avoid similar legal challenges that um, that kept a number of us busy from kind of 1988 and then yeah. 1999 onwards, as um, uh, effectively the UK system probably failed to strictly meet the requirements of European legislation. Mm. But I mean, this is a system being made by UK government. Uh, they they should be aware of all of those challenges and challenges that have uh, taken place over the last 20 or 30 years. And you would hope that they will recognize that uh, phased and staged approach and the need for that to be refreshed in the, um, the set of regulations that come out. And importantly, in the benchmarking exercise that's referred to, I mean, the benchmarking is gonna be absolutely critical in terms of understanding what it is that you're assessing and what the required outcomes are going to be. So, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the regulations say here. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, you know, we've all learned and I think we've all got better through that process over those years. Yeah, and, and the planning system now, you know, is at the forefront of uh, protecting the, the environment. But we also need, still need to deliver 300,000 homes unless that number yeah. has now gone down because the white low number. But yeah, so really looking at you, you, Tom, you know, is that benchmarking now in the environment is a political push, would you say, or is it simply taking the opportunity of of Brexit to get to a more refined and streamlined system? I think it lays bare the tensions that exist, certainly within the Conservative Party, um, around broader issues around environmentalism, net zero, sustainability, where I think there is certainly um, part of the party that wants to see unrestrained economic growth, and that's how you get out of the current economic mess we're in. And part of that is house building and is letting developers um, go like the clappers and build as many homes as possible and regenerate town centres and almost, you know, the, the environment's an afterthought. There are huge caucuses also within the party and um, the Conservative Environment Group, which one of their main patrons is actually the Prime Minister's wife, who have been at the forefront of, of really driving that agenda forward within the party. There is no coherent message from the party on their position on these things at the moment. And I'll go back to the first point I made about the delicate position the Prime Minister finds himself in at the moment. I think he's moving day to day, week to week. I think it's tactical rather than strategic at every move. And I think he's more worried about making sure he's in place, you know, for party conference, let alone the next election uh, at this point, than thinking about what we need as planners and the development community to make sure we've got properly planned, sustainable, um, development that, that's going to benefit um, both people that need the homes and the, benefit the country environmentally. So Jenny sent us a five minute warning because um, we could talk for hours and we haven't even touched five year land supply, section one, six levies, um, high street uh, evolution, and commencement notices and completion. Street so boats. We, <laughs> so we can all come back. Yeah, we can all come back and and we should. It, it, if you were tasked, if you had the opportunity to table one amendment to that bill, because you've all read it, haven't you? Of course you have. Uh, if you were tasked with one amendment or to pose one question in committee, what, what would that be? Who wants to go first? Come on, I'm top. Oh, you go first. Here. Go, go no, sorry, well, I'm just I'm just going to have a crack at um, at uh, the infrastructure mm -hmm. levy and uh, affordable housing. Uh, I may. I think that, that if 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 I could sort of suggest, I think it's a bit of a podcast. 
cast in its own right, to be honest, because yeah. uh, there's so much in it. But the, the thing that, that's missing for me in all of the debate around the infrastructure levy um, is making sure that the levy um, is, is ring-fenced, hypothecated, to use the tax term, to the um, mitigation and infrastructure that it's meant to provide. Uh, it's all very well um, saying that we're going to raise more money through a mandatory levy, but that's only part of the story. The, the whole point about the levy is that it's to fund important social and physical infrastructure, which improves the lives um, and the quality of lives of those who are living in a near new development. So it's, it's, a, it's a game of two halves. Yes, you can get the developers to pay more money, but the money needs to be spent and it needs to be spent effectively and properly to provide the infrastructure. And I think the uh, provisions around um, infrastructure plans uh, for local authorities is going to be critically important to make sure that that infrastructure that's funded through those payments actually comes forward. Otherwise, um, it's, it's, an empty, it's an empty promise. It will raise more tax, but the tax might not be spent in the right way. So that would be my challenge to government on, on, on that particular provision. My amendment would be, I think there are some welcome changes in the bill. I think increasing planning fees to provide more funding for local authorities to properly resource the planning system, I think is great. So my amendment would be, I'd go further. I've spoken to several clients about this. Not a single one of them has said they wouldn't be willing to pay, I was gonna say more, even more, if they knew that the planning system would function properly. So yeah. I would like to see more money for local authorities so they can do their job. I catch you, Ona. Well, my, mine's easy. Um, they've, they've gone so far down the, right, the road now with the spatial development strategies, I would make it mandatory either for combined authorities to do it and where combined authorities didn't do it, I would make it mandatory for local planning authorities to do it and be part of it, whatever geography they want to work on. But I wouldn't, I would make it mandatory that every local planning authority was involved in a spatial development strategy in some way. Mary? I want to know a bit more about monitoring. I think it's a good suggestion that environmental outcomes reports are monitored. I think that is a missing link at the minute, but how is that going to happen? How is the resource at local authority going to help with that? I think that's quite a key question. Fantastic. Well, well thank you, everyone. I think we've come to the end of our 20, 25 minutes. Um, we've barely touched the surface. Um, and we've also succeeded in not using those two phrases so 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 excellent and and well done and i'm 10 pound richer so so, so excellent <laughs> and um so thank you everyone hopefully those of you who have listened have enjoyed it and found it useful we will return to it we will ask in uh, katrina tom and mary to come back and we will delve into this, these points more and more thank you very much indeed thank thanks you. ian thanks all cheers